This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hello, I'm Jason Kelly. And I'm Carol Masser. Welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week Extra. It's our weekly podcast bringing you an in-depth interview you will not hear anywhere else. And this one we were so looking forward to because it's like a year, year and a half ago that we were all talking about the Varsity Blues scandal because that's when it broke in March of last year. And there's a new book out about it, and we were thrilled to have with us Melissa Korn. She's a writer at the Wall Street Journal. She Mm -hmm. co-wrote this book, Carol, with Jennifer Levitz, and it's called Unacceptable, Privilege, Deceit, and the Making of the College Admission Scandal. Check it out. This was just such a wild story to report, both for the journal and for the book. And my colleague and co-author, Jennifer Levitz, and I, we were really blown away by... So so many things, honestly. Yeah. Uh, the scope, the breadth, the sophistication of this scheme that uh, the mastermind Rick Singer put together, but also what it says about our society and parents' obsession with prestige and brand name schools. And it was often really the parents, more so than their teens, who were striving for these particular institutions. And they were the ones driving driving the whole process. So, Melissa, take us back, because this was something, as Carol just alluded to, that landed, and all of us across the the journalistic world, the parental world especially, Carol and I both have mm-hmm. uh, juniors in high school, so we pay very close attention to all of these things, as many do. Remind us what Operation Varsity Blues laid bare. Yes. So in March of 2019, which does seem like forever ago, harkens back to a simpler time, uh, showed that uh, there was this college admissions counselor, Rick Singer, who had managed to find and exploit a few real weaknesses in the selective college admissions process, both in terms of standardized tests, where he had paid off test site administrators and a proctor uh, to fudge and cheat fudge scores and cheat and improve the results for a number of clients. Uh, He also found weaknesses in athletic recruiting and the special slots that are given to recruited athletes in the admissions process. And he arranged to bribe a number of college coaches and uh, others to flag individuals as recruited athletes, even when they didn't play a sport. And there was nobody checking. That was one of the big things that was really made clear here was that nobody was checking the math. Nobody was test, you know, auditing these applications in any way because nobody ever thought that a coach would choose somebody who wasn't going to actually help the team. But if the price tag was high enough, clearly they did. It's amazing, Melissa, because I think, you know, we've all understood, I think, safe to say that there's understandings that there are legacies and families that have been at schools and, you know, you know, donations, kid, donations you know, that things happened. But this was just on a whole other level. Right. So we have a whole chapter in the book called The Gray Area, which gets at the legacies, donations, the VIP list of applicants. And I think everybody knows that that goes on. This is kind of at the far end of the spectrum and obviously a little bit too far in illegal territory. But it really does highlight some of the existing inequities in the system. And I think it's a good reminder that even those people who aren't doing things like that, or even people who aren't legacies or donating hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, many of them have an edge too. If you're hiring a private SAT tutor or essay coach or sending your kid to a 
regional club soccer team that costs $10,000 a year. Those are not experiences that every student has. So, Melissa, one of the amazing things about this book, because this is, of course, a scandal that has been written about and talked about, is you and your co-author got some amazing access. You got to people that basically no one else has gotten to. Tell us about that. Yeah, we were really fortunate in being able to speak to a lot of the principal players in this whole story. And I think a part of it was we made clear that they were going to be in the book, whether they wanted to or not, and they could help make sure that it was accurate or try to hide from it. And a lot decided it was better to engage. So, you know, we, we can't say who exactly we spoke with and we make really clear that don't assume that just because there's a scene from one person's point of view, that that was the person that we got the information from, uh, of course, as we protect our sources. But we really did try to get inside their heads and explain a little bit about why they engaged with Singer, why Singer was the way he was, why the prosecutors took the approach they did, um, because I think there nobody is. It's really hard for any individual to be painted, you know, black and white, good guy, bad guy here. Because even the parents who committed felonies ultimately were, in some twisted way, trying to help their kids, and that's relatable. What's I read a little excerpt. I think it was in People um, online, and. You talk about one, uh, Devin Sloan, who asked his son to pose for photos in the family pool wearing full water polo gear and didn't really give him a reason why. And the son did it, even though he didn't play the sport. Like, it's just amazing kind of some of the steps that parents went to and kept their kids in the dark. It really was. And I think, you know, with that that, uh, excerpt and the, the anecdote with the son, Mateo, he was really thoughtful about the whole thing and afterwards and said, you know, I was really mad at my dad, but then I kind of felt bad for him that he thought that he needed to do this to make me successful. Uh, You know, this is a teen who would have been just fine on his own. He would have landed at a perfectly good school um, without that extra, all the extra bells and whistles and costumes and posing and things like that. And his dad was sentenced to four months in prison, but he got to stay at the school, correct? Right. He's one of the students who was not kicked out. Every yeah. university, every college did it, did their reviews a little bit differently. Um, some uh, expelled or rescinded the admission offers for students. Others allowed the student to continue. It really was case by case at a lot of these places. Melissa, tell us more about the the parents in this case. And we're speaking with Melissa Korn, reporter at the Wall Street Journal and co-author of the new book, Unacceptable Privilege, Deceit, and the Making of the College Admissions Scandal. Tell us about the parents, because what you just said, I think, resonated throughout this story uh, that in many cases, at least this is, I think, how I read it, for the parents, this was as much about them as it was about their kids. Absolutely. And we talk a lot about that culture that was really prevalent in some of these pockets of Southern California and the Bay Area and New York, and that your kids are a reflection of you. So if your kids are succeeding by certain kind of predetermined measures, you as a parent are therefore succeeding. And it's beyond, you know, are they walking and talking when they're supposed to? It's are they getting into this particular school? Because this particular school is one that you can boast about at a cocktail party. Well, that school that's perfectly good, but perhaps not as well known. You know, nobody wants to hear hear about that over hors d'oeuvres. So these parents really did get very caught up in that. And in the sense that 
my kid needs to succeed because it's a way of showing that I am doing a good job as a parent. So what's happened as a result of this? And I wonder in terms of admissions, I mean, I feel like I have to say, I do remember when it broke in our, we, Jason and I were in our New York studio and we were just like, what? you know, and, and especially because there are a lot of names beyond the celebrity names that we knew, um, mm-hmm. whether in the financial community. But I do wonder if like all colleges kind of went and was like, okay, you know, like let's do, you know, a deep dive to find out our process and make sure we're doing it the right way. Like what's, what's happened as a result of it? What's maybe gotten better at colleges and universities when it comes to the admissions process, if anything? Yeah, er- early on last spring and summer, there were these hints that there was going to be change and these moments of reflection and, and introspection and, okay, yeah, maybe we should audit our application or if somebody gets in as a recruited athlete, let's make sure they actually join the team. And, you know, a number of schools came out and said they would do that. California um, actually passed some legislation at the state level that schools needed to be more transparent about things like legacy admissions. But at the end of the day, there wasn't dramatic change. It's not like schools are saying no to donations that happen to come from families that are, um, you know, a couple years off from college. And I, I don't see that stopping. I also think that with the pandemic and a lot of schools really facing major budget crunches, it's really hard for them to uh, look away from the dollar bills when, when they're dangled right now. Yeah, so I absolutely. Think yeah, I anything, mean, the, the financial reform, pressures. Mm-hmm, exactly. Some of those reforms maybe kind of put on the back burner for a little while. So, Melissa, I want to go back briefly, if we can, to, to something that, that Carol mentioned, which is the celebrity aspect of this. And, you know, one of the elements, I think, that really pushed this into the public consciousness was that this wasn't just about rich bankers or rich private equity executives who certainly were caught up in this. And as Carol alluded to, you know, folks well known to a Bloomberg audience or a Wall Street Journal audience, but, you know, maybe less so in the public world. But we're talking about actresses and most notably, I think, because she and her husband fought it for so long, Lori Laughlin. Tell us about that part of the story, because it's one you dig into in the book. We do, um, because it the the story of Laurie Lachlan and her husband Massimo Giannulli and their two daughters uh, helps illustrate just kind of how the athletic recruiting scheme worked very well. He, um, the two girls at various points posed on an erg in their home gym, and the photos were sent to Rick Singer's team, and they ended up not being used in the final application. The one of his um, deputies used a different different pictures, but it just showed how easy it was and how kind of murky some of the discussions were about exactly what was happening here. So we, we get into it in the book of what their defense was, uh, you know, what they say Singer told them was actually going on. And that, no, it's totally fine. You're giving financial support to the, to the crew team. It's fine that they don't play, that they're, you know, they're not rowers or coxswains. This happens all the time, totally kosher, versus... Yes, I am fully aware I am making a bribe so that my kid can get into school pretending to be an athlete and not being an athlete. Um, and yes, so they pleaded guilty right around the time the book was going to the, the printer. So we uh, tweaked a couple of things real fast in there. <laughs> it kept us on our toes till the very last minute. Yeah, it was kind of touch and go, it felt like. Um, what was the most surprising thing in this process and all the reporting that you guys did and then eventually putting it into this book? So I think um, you, you guys alluded to this a little bit before, but that there is something a little bit relatable for some of the, with some of these families, some of these parents, 
right? I'm a parent too. My daughter's much younger, but you want what's best for your kid. And obviously their approaches here were quite misguided, but you can kind of see that. You can feel that. You can, you can relate to that, that they, in some, yes, a lot of this was about their own ego, but they also did try to help their kid. And you also would try to help your kid you might not go this far. But I think um, that the fact that some of these parents, I could see myself in some of them, that, that surprised me personally. Yeah, yeah. It was also a very interesting dynamic to explore in the book. Well, don't you feel especially, because you're based in New York, right? Because you're here at the Journal. Yeah. You know, New York Metro, like it's just a whole other world. Bananas. Right? And everybody's so aware of where people work, where they live, where they vacation, where their kids go to school. Like it's, it's unfortunately, that's this world. It is, it is. And it's, it's one that I'm kind of at the early stages of with my own kid. But, mm. you know, people were joking about greasing the palms of a, a, a parent coordinator to get your kid off the pre-K wait list. Um, and I don't know how much they were really joking or serious. Yeah, they exist. conversations that people yeah. have. Yeah. Well, and to that point, Melissa, it's, it's interesting because, you know, you talked about how, well, we'll sort of see and, and maybe we're all a little bit cynical given what we've seen or not seen from the higher ed perspective. Do you think and do you sense that behavior has markedly changed on the part of parents? Or are they just more careful about, you know, the parts of the gray area that they're operating in? Yeah, I don't see them completely turning away from the gray area. I remember talking to one person um, when reporting the book who said, you know, from uh, Orange County, California, very, very wealthy, very well connected and saying, you know, my kid's heading down in down. Uh, down this path, going through the process next year, and we were going to hire a private counselor, but now I'm afraid to, just mm-hmm. because of the uh, the connotations and the associations of oh, you use someone private, you know, did you what kind of person did you use? I think there's some more skepticism right. or cynicism, and not always warranted because most do follow the rules and everything. But I think people are going to be a little more cautious about who they let play around and tinker with the application. Right. And what a wacky year I'm thinking about just right now between the virus and I know we're looking at, I both Jason and I have rising seniors and it's just, you know, you're doing the process virtually, but then also the backdrop of, you know, this scandal and just, I don't know, you know, the, the tone that it kind of puts on this whole process. I have to ask you, remind us what happened to Rick Singer. He's in jail, right? He is not. He is awaiting sentencing. He is okay. out. He is um, actually taking some cl- has been taking some classes to try to finish up his PhD that he started almost 20 years ago or about 20 years ago. The story just gets uh, more so- interesting, right? <laughs> I know. Um, yeah, he's out and about. And his sentencing won't come likely until after some of the trials, which will go into next year. And what is the defense ultimately for those? Because there, there's fewer and fewer people, um, and, and you mentioned Lori Lachlan pleading guilty and her husband, um, but there are still some people out there. Bill McGlashan, I believe, notably, uh, former TPG partner at the Rise Fund and TPG Growth, he is continuing to fight on. What ultimately is their defense? Right. So, yeah, there are a number that are still um, proceeding and have pleaded guilty and are maintaining their innocence. And they're mostly saying, you know, Rick Singer misled them, that he was very selective in what information he shared. And while he might have done these bad deeds, he didn't necessarily explain it to them that way. Uh, So that's a big, big part of it. They've already exhausted a number of efforts to get the 
uh, charges dismissed because of venue or trying to sever the cases saying we shouldn't all be tried together. We weren't part of a single conspiracy. The judge has dismissed all of the or has kind of shot all those down and said, no, this is going forward. So um, there is exhausted most of those options. And, you know, maybe we'll see some more plead. We don't know uh, whether parents or coaches, but they're essentially saying, you know, this, this was Singer's thing. We were just parents here kind of going along for the ride, not realizing exactly what was happening around us. Yeah. Uh, hard to write the book? Uh, it was a chaotic, hectic 15 months, <laughs> lots of nights and weekends. Yeah. Because uh, Jennifer and I were both doing our day jobs at the Journal as well. Yeah. Right. As the story continued to evolve, right? Because it's not over, as you said. Right. I was just... Uh, you know, there's another parent being sentenced next week and the former CEO of a publicly traded company and uh, Larry Lachlan and Massimo Giannulli are scheduled for later this summer. So, yeah, this is far from over still. Melissa, I do want to ask you maybe, you know, one more question is that if it hadn't been some high profile people involved, I wonder how we would have looked at this. Like if it was a lot of names, you're like, I don't know who these people are. You know what I mean? Versus actresses and big name Wall Street yeah. folks. Um, would it have, Would we be talking about it as much? Probably not. Um, Mm -hmm. I think people will know that college admissions are not quite as pure and meritocratic as we'd all hope they are, but it really does take something quite so shocking, quite so big, quite so high profile to really get people talking about where the fault lines are and how they could perhaps be shored up. You know, if it was, I think Bloomberg and Wall Street Journal would have been talking about right. some of it yeah, uh, right. you know, with some of these names. Um, but yeah, I don't know that it would have captured the public, the international audience, the way it has, you know, when you've got tabloid reporters sitting in the courtroom in Boston to cover this, if it hadn't been for a couple of those names in particular. That was Melissa Korn, who, along with Jennifer Levitz of the Wall Street Journal, they wrote the book that just came out this week. The book is entitled Unacceptable, Privilege, Deceit, and the Making of the College Admissions Scandal. And Jason, great to catch up with her. You know, she said, you know, right off the top, she was dumbfounded and blown away by the scope of this, the breadth and sophistication of the scheme, but also about what some parents would go to to get their kids into school. Yeah, and I think it's a story that's much bigger than these families in so far as it says a lot about our society, mm-hmm. what we value, how we interact with our kids, how we interact with institutions, how institutions interact with us, the role that money plays. I mean, there's so much. There's a text, there's a subtext in all of this, and uh, I really enjoyed that conversation, wide-ranging, to say the least. Well, she said it was mu- as much about the parents as it was about the kids. Totally. I think no. more so. I would yeah. argue more so. All right, you've been listening to Bloomberg Business Week Extra. Be sure to tune into Bloomberg Bloomberg Business Week Radio Live Monday through Friday at 2 p.m. Wall Street Time on Bloomberg Radio. Have a great weekend. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. This is Bloomberg.